Well, I mean, I, I suppose that my feelings about the superhero have probably changed really, very really drastically over the past sort of 30 years. I mean, initially, when I was seven, uh, I saw the superheroes as an incredible source of ideas and imagination. It wasn't that I wanted to be Superman and be able to beat up bullies. Um, I was a pretty big kid, I could beat up bullies <laughs> by myself. So it was just purely the imagination that, that, was, that they represented. And um, that was how I used to feel about them. That was the way that I tried to treat them. When I began working in the genre, I tried to think of new ways to use the characters, stuff like that. Um, my feelings have changed since. I have become really, really cranky and embittered. the weekly pseudo-academic pop culture analysis roundtable with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Wayne Wise. How's it going, Wayne? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing all right. A little weirdness. We mentioned last show at the top of the show about Chadwick Boseman dying, but we'd actually recorded that bit after we recorded the show because he hadn't died yet. So I've been like reading a bunch of that stuff and mm. people's remembrances of him and it's depressing and sad. And <laughs> you know. yeah, it's, it's same here. I've, I've been reading some of the stuff and it is like in the middle of a year where everything's already horrible losing. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a reminder that, Oh yeah, people die of things other than coronavirus and that's still going on and all these other things. So mm-hmm. it, there's something sobering about that whole aspect. Yeah. Of things. Well, I, I do want to mention I was reading um, one article about him today, which um, which actually sort of kind of segues into the topic that we're going to talk about today. Um, there was an article that was like it was an um, it was a statement from Ryan Coogler, and he was talking about just how great a guy his friend Chad was, you know, um, and he was talking about. Bozeman was the one who decided that the that all the Wakandans in the Black Panther movie, well, actually originally in Captain America Civil War, but in the MCU, they would all speak um, Josha, which is the native language of um, South Africa, because the guy who was playing his father spoke that. So he literally just had them translate his lines and learn them all that day. And to me, that was sort of the it was it was a weird aspirational kind of thing he wanted to normalize he didn't just want to do the standard thing that a lot of these movies do is well if you're foreign you speak very stilted english and a pseudo british accent and he didn't want that he wanted it to be more authentically african even though it's a fictional nation and Mm. so so that was one of those things where i thought well this is somebody trying to do something it's not comics it's movies but trying to do something with the superhero genre that is not just you know, can we get to the part where we punch people? You know? Right. But today we're going to talk about um, how we got to the point where we're making Black Panther movies, actually, kind of. <laughs> um, 
And this goes into a little discussion that uh, it's deconstruction and reconstruction in superhero comics. And this, I, I became, well, I've always been interested in it, but I became interested in it enough to where I wanted to do a show when our good friend Matt Brake posted about it on Facebook. I guess he'd done some other podcast because he's cheating on us. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. But um, Matt's back. Hey, Matt. Hey. No, I, so, as, as I've said, welcome back, Matt. As I've said in, in previous podcasts, we're kind of a polyamorous podcast. So you you go on out there and, and yeah, you feel free. You, you <laughs> be on any show you want to be on. It's good to have a healthy, open podcast relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. And uh, you you had some thoughts. We'll get to exactly what you were talking about over there in a moment. But I want to introduce the other guest because um, you had some thoughts about the way a certain comic book that's actually kind of old now, Animal Man, was presented and as kind of a deconstructionist comic. So, yeah, with Animal Man, uh, it takes place. It is written by Grant Morrison uh, in the late 80s. He's considered one of the British invaders. You know, you had people like Alan Moore, you know, came, uh, was writing comics for US, for DC specifically. And he was such a big hit that DC recruited a bunch of other British writers, including Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison. And so Morrison comes in and uh, writes this miniseries that is trying to be sort of more Alan Moore-esque, uh, which for Alan Moore, he, you know, sort of deconstructs and reinvents the mainstream comics he touches. Uh, and so Morrison does that to a certain extent in his first four issues, but then he uh, builds on something more and uses his Animal Man story um, to critique some changes that had happened in DC Comics uh, during the 80s. And uh, along the way, I think, uh, makes some really cool comments about the nature of reality and so forth um, mm -hmm. that I got into on that podcast. And that, I mean, <laughs> we'll get into the details of it in a little bit, but that was part of this era of comics that people called the deconstruction era, or they also taught, called it the dark and gritty era. And I'm, Wayne, I'm sure we'll have many, many thoughts about that. But before we get to it, I wanted to introduce our other guest, who's another friend of the show who's been on several times, um, A. David Lewis. Hey, Dave. Hi. Um, wait a second. Matt's polyamorous? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you've been waiting so patiently to make that joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we I think we have to make that the subject of the <laughs> today. I mean deconstruction and reconstruction is fascinating, but this is much more fascinating. Just, you just want to talk about Matt's love life, sure. I really do. I really do. As is my co-editor um, on uh, uh, for a uh, religion and comic book series. Uh, yeah, I want to know more about. <laughs> oh, Hello. you guys might need your own show for that. <laughs> But, uh, but Dave, no, one of the reasons I wanted to invite you back was because, as we've mentioned, you haven't talked about it a lot on this show, other than when we, we ask you to plug something at the end of the show, every time you're on, you talk about the comic that you write, Kismet. And that I I think is a really good example of what we call reconstruction, which came after the deconstruction. So just give people a little brief on on what Kismet Kismet Man of Fate is. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um I first came across Kismet when I was actually doing research on Muslim superheroes and depictions of Islam in popular culture. Uh, and I determined that he was probably the first Muslim superhero. This is back in 1944. 
with the uh, four issue bomber comics. Uh, and I was really sort of uh, captured with the with the character. I was really sort of smitten with him. So I opted to bring him back from the public domain after 70 years. But as you alluded to, I didn't want to just bring him back as a as a Nazi fighting superhero. Um, I wanted to bring him to the present. He was sort of Captain America move on him, uh, whisk him to the present and make him confront fascism through activism. So mm-hmm. I try to take the earlier parts of the Kismet story and remix them in a way that mm-hmm. made him into something I'd argue relatively new, a uh, hope punk super activist. Mm-hmm. So the reason I think that's interesting, and we're starting with Animal Man and Kismet, because um, I'm sure when most people hear deconstruction in the superhero genre, yeah, they think about what I wrote about in the blog at the very beginning. The, the people constantly use that term. In fact, uh, Zack Snyder, who's directed many DCEU movies, he did Man of Steel, he did Batman versus Superman, and he sort of kind of did Justice League, and he's now about to release the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League that everyone's so happy about for reasons that I do not understand. I mean, I'll watch it, but um, but I'm me. Um, Snyder <laughs> often says things like when, when people complain about BVS, and he said in an interview, well, after that movie, we learned that a lot of people just don't like having their superheroes deconstructed. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, if superheroes existed in the real world, they would have to be violent and fascist. It's the only way things could happen. And the more and more I listen to Zack Snyder talk about deconstruction of superheroes, I realize that he doesn't actually know what deconstruction means. And then I thought <laughs> did once, I think when he was filming Watchmen. Which he did before the DCEU. He may have had a sense of it then, but he's. I'm not sure if he did or not. I'm, he might have just been copying exactly what Alan Moore did so closely that it seemed like it. Because, right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the guy, but just the more he talks about it, like, and, and, and I think Watchmen's the, the exact example because Watchmen, I would argue, is a deconstructionist text, it does yeah. deconstruct comics. However, because Watchmen is perceived as this uber violent, uber sexual book, and it's not, by the way, I have very complicated feelings about Watchmen, but because it's perceived as so gritty and violent, I think there's a point in the early 90s, Watchmen comes out in 1985, 1986, I think that by 1990, 92, everybody's trying to deconstruct violence. And what they mean by that is just let's have as many beefy guys and super sexy women shooting guns and killing as many people as possible in 22 pages and maybe they can curse and that's just all it was i'm thinking of things like things like young blood uh things like uh jim lee's wildcats things like oh, witchblade lessons both, yes both yeah. industry and creators took all the wrong lessons out of Watchmen's success yeah mm-hmm. which is something i want to talk about a little later with something i just read literally since i wrote my my entry for the call for comments for this last week Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Mav, give us an operational definition of deconstruction. So we know what we're talking about. So the audience does. Okay. So <laughs> deconstruction, what it actually is academically. And because we are a pseudo academic round table with pop culture analysis. Uh, uh, yeah. I, hold on. Let me, let me drink a sip of my beer. Okay. <laughs> so what deconstruction actually is, is deconstruction is a, is a literary term that comes from 
a critic and philosopher uh, named Jacques De- Jacques Derrida, and he is a is a very important academic scholar. That if you're not getting a PhD in something, I recommend you don't bother to read because he will make your head hurt. Really, <laughs> um, no one should ever be forced to read Jacques yeah, Derrida see, I, unless yeah, it's your job. I'm I'm not getting a doctorate, and I have so. <laughs> and do you do you disagree? No, not at all. Not at all. I, yeah, I, I I read that because I'm me. <laughs> so so Derrida has this theory that genre eventually becomes about genre rather than about saying anything. You, you, you generate a bunch of tropes and like suddenly you are telling a superhero story and it's just like this. You're telling a romance story, a romance novel, and it's just like this. You're telling a cowboy story and these are the tropes of cowboy stories. Whatever it is, you just sort of have, um, you have a set of just rules that sort of people follow blindly and language does the same thing. Style, format, Everything about the, about a a genre text just becomes this certain set of rules that go into generating the text. Derrida believed that if you deconstruct the text, and he means either as a critic, as somebody like us, this is what we do on this show every time we analyze something, what does this really mean? But he also meant as an author, maybe you write a new text that uses the tropes but breaks them apart or specifically ignores them or really examines them and then you can you can find out something you can derive truths about the society wherein the text was made what does this say about the ideology and politics of the day so watchmen is using superhero tropes breaking superhero tropes in order to comment on 1985 era Reaganomics Cold War politics. That's what Watchmen's really about. He is looking at what does the world around us actually look like through these superhero tropes? And what can we say about the comic book industry itself on a meta level when we're looking at this world where people's job is to punch people because that's what they've always done and the flaws therein. Fair to say that one of the cultural um, cultural expressions that it was also tracking was nuclear anxiety. Absolutely, Matt, That's really interesting, and makes me think of makes me contrast it with uh, in my head with Doomsday Clock because mm-hmm. even though I I enjoyed Doomsday Clock, I still found it. Whereas uh, Watchmen actually, I think, was saying something about the world it was in about power, politics, nuclear anxiety. Right. Doomsday Clock almost fits Derrida's and and this we can get into later. I think this might be a big problem with a lot of what falls under reconstruction in comics is, mm-hmm. is that a lot of it falls back into what Derrida was saying about genre eventually just becoming about genre because Doomsday Clock, I'm not sure actually says anything about the world other than some general message about how we need hope and stop being divided by our identity politics, which is sort of an actual line, mm-hmm. but, it, but it ends up just being a commentary on the genre itself. Like it's about yeah. the metaverse yeah. and Superman yeah. and the yeah. Watchmen universe. It is so specifically commentary on Watchmen and the yeah. DC commentary universe. on Watchmen and the DC universe as it existed four years ago when he started writing it, writing it and wrote it too slow. So for yeah. Right. It was it was written by Jeff Johns, who I'm a fan of, by the way. I actually like yeah. Jeff Johns, but but Jeff Johns wasn't writing a Jeff Johns story. Jeff Johns sat down and tried to pretend that he was some cross between Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, and he is not. And that was the that was the flaw in Doomsday Clock to me. Like he was really 
really trying hard to be Grant Morrison. And Grant Morrison is a singular, unique individual, for better or for worse. Yeah. And sometimes for worse, as much as I like him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly why I said it that way. And there's, there's, I mean, Grant Morrison has a lot of stuff where he's weird and maybe he's doing a deconstruction of something. He probably clearly has some point in there somewhere. Like when, what was the um thing before Doomsday Clock? The, um, seven issues each one seven links. soldiers of victory no 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 yeah. the um the one where there, there's the, there's the oh, Shazam oh, story yeah um, right. yeah no the multi multiversity 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 clearly there is some deep message too i don't know what it is yeah. i've I, been doing I, this a long time and yeah. i don't know if i'm smart enough to work my way through multiversity when i my reaction when i read his autobiography super gods uh, which we'll, we'll link in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. like, and in general, I, I'm, I'm a Grant Morrison fan. I've liked more of his stuff than I've disliked, but there were, there were places where I read. You went, talking. To his, you went to his, his convention, didn't you? No, I didn't. I almost didn't. didn't. I, I didn't. Okay. Uh, one of those regrets. Um, but there were places where I was reading his autobiography, autobiography where he was talking about creating you know, this book. And the thoughts he were ha- he was having and going into it, and the things that he wanted to deal with and whatever, like that's absolutely fascinating. That's brilliant. I wish I had picked up on any of that while reading it. <laughs> uh, which which means you failed to convey some of those really great ideas. Not always. Some places he kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, he got it. Mm-hmm. Other places, like yeah, that's boy, I didn't see any of that at all. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not the dumbest reader in comics. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's how I felt about it too. I was just like, I I don't. Like, I'm sure there's something here. I just well, don't know and, what it is. <laughs> and I will say, to, sometimes the things he was deconstructing or being influenced by were so incredibly obscure that I had no idea what he was deconstructing or dealing with. So it just didn't resonate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so so anyway, let's go. Let, let's go back to the beginning. Then we've I think that. Well, I shouldn't say the beginning because people have always been doing this, right? Like, um, in fact, in the call for comments, I started with Watchmen and and uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight. And then Wayne pointed out, rightly so, that you can literally go back a decade and look at Nexus. Um, Nexus, Grimjack, you said DNA agent, Coyote. Um, I would argue some earlier texts as well, you know, even the yeah. beginning of the graphic novel. But um I picked the one that people always point to. I picked Watchmen because people say that. And I, and I really do think that Watchmen, Dark Knight, and to a lesser extent, probably Killing Joke, all coming out within a two-year period. Um, sort of really, and all doing phenomenally well for yeah. the industry, well, for direct sales books in the industry in the mid-80s. Just re, I mean, Watchmen, I think, is also... Watchmen's okay. intent just, is sort of to restructure yeah, the, I, the idea of comics, but I, I, it really I, I does. Question, I questioned myself what I wrote in the blog since writing it. Um, and I, I'm just going to bring this up now and then we can, we can move on. But I, you know, I started wondering things like Nexus and Grimjack and those other ones I mentioned, you know, they came out of that early eighties direct sales market when suddenly you could write superheroes that weren't based in Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. And now I'm wondering like, were those actually reconstructions or deconstructions in the same, same way Watchmen was, or was it just building on what had gone before in ways that wasn't possible under Marvel and DC? Mm-hmm. It's it hard it, to say. Yeah. Is, 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 is next is a deconstruction or is just, we are now building on this trope in ways we couldn't before. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm well, I think I think you said it. I think you said it right that they were the successes. I mean, these were commercial smash yes. um, deconstructionist successes. It, 
if I were hard pressed, I could make an argument for the introduction of red kryptonite and blue kryptonite being deconstruction. Yeah, no, yeah. I think you're right. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Explain why, because I, I see what you're saying, but yeah. So they take, so, uh, first of all, if I remember this correctly, kryptonite first originated on the Superman radio show, not yes. in the comics, okay? Yes. Yeah, well, so, probably. There's an, there's a, there's a anti, kryptonite as named originates in the, in the Superman radio show. Um, there's right. a couple of things happening concurrently in the comic strip, which involve like a, a metal that Superman's vulnerable to. It doesn't have a name or it later is like element K or uh, anti-metal or something. But yes, for the most part, kryptonite what we think of as kryptonite is uh, originally a trope of the radio show so you could say that the impulse to sort of plumb kryptonite right to break it into uh, multiple colors and effect is at least a deconstructionist move right yes. i'm not saying that it's leading to deconstructionist stories or has deconstructionist mm-hmm. intent and is saying something greater about superman or about krypton but I think we can catch um, writers who were looking for innovations or way to plumb earlier material already having this in their toolbox before mm-hmm. it became something that drove a whole title or, or even drove a whole industry, if well, we're going to be and, frank. And, and you know, what Lee and Kirby and Ditko at all were doing with Marvel starting in 1961. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. They, they brought something brand new to the table that we hadn't seen before. So was it deconstructing what had gone before or, or building upon it? Uh, I, was just, I think that's an interesting question, Wayne, specifically because when we talk about mainstream comic deconstruction, we think about things like Watchmen, like The Dark Knight Returns. And part of what gets talked about in terms of deconstruction is the addition of realism, Mm -hmm. right? Hence the dark and grittiness. And so it's interesting for you to say that about Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, because one of the things Stan Lee wanted to do was tell the story of superheroes as real people. And so Mm -hmm. in some ways, Watchmen takes that to its logical conclusion. Like, so if we're defining deconstruction and its successors, there's something about pulling in realism, stripping away idealism, and then the successors taking that idea of realism to mean more violence, more sexiness, mm-hmm. uh, pouches, on every, I, pouches on every costume, right? Can I, yeah. Can I just call out in this particular case that stripping back idealism is only considered realistic here because of how idealistic the genre was Yes. Uh, prior to that. Right. And, and I, yeah, I, and I, I'm sorry, David, I was just going to say you, that same time period while Adam West was on TV escaping from giant clams, Neil Adams is drawing a much more realistic Batman in the comics. Right. And my so, counter would be is I don't know. So here's one of those places where I think that if Derrida were a comic scholar, he might even say exactly what Matt said, which was stripping away the idealism is part of deconstruction. But that's because Derrida himself was very consumed with the idea of breaking down ideology. Um, I don't know that I think it has to be that. I think that David's right. And comics of the Silver Age had become so idealistic with with a few exceptions. I, mm-hmm. I mean, as Wayne pointed out, Batman at that point, you're, you're getting the, the introduction of Ra's al Ghul. Right. So, right. <laughs> you know, you're you're But for the most part, they become so idealistic due to <laughs> due in large part to the CCA Comics Code Authority that suddenly you're breaking down, breaking down the, the genre means breaking down the hokey idealism. Yes. And going for that for that realistic take. But I would counter with 
Animal Man, which I'd say is absolutely deconstruction and doesn't absolutely. fit that at all. And to follow Morrison af- after Animal Man, moving on to Doom Patrol, which is just weird as shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doom Patrol is real. I mean, so if um, in fact, I will I will even go from Morrison's early Doom Patrol work is it, there's a direct through line to the current DC Universe rest in peace um, HBO Max series Doom Patrol, which mm-hmm. if you're not working, watching is brilliant. It's yeah. really good. Um, the comic is even weirder than that. The comic is just bizarre. And, and Morrison is commenting on everything from his personal life philosophy to religion, to science, to the comic book industry, to, mental to health the very issues. nature of time. Yeah, yeah. And mental health, the very nature of time and narrative, uh, especially in Animal Man. Yeah. Animal Man yeah. might as, I mean, if, if the best way I can describe Animal Man for anybody's, uh, anybody who's never read it is if you're a fan of Deadpool today, you're a fan of yeah. Deadpool for either, you know, either because it's uber violent, which, you know, good for you. Or if you're a fan of the weirdness of Deadpool, where Deadpool comments on the, on the comic book industry by being aware of his place as a comic book character. And there's a meta narrative and it's very postmodern. If you're a fan of, of, of Deadpool today, Animal Man is that to the 10th power written by one of the best writers that ever stepped in, stepped into a comic book. Now, can I show Shorten that down to yeah. it's a meta narrative about Deadpool if he was part of PETA. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 That's I, a great way of doing it, Mav. Mm-hmm. I love that you described that as written by one of the best writers ever to walk into a comic book. Considering that Grant Morrison <laughs> walks into the comic book, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And and by that, we mean not only is he writing it, he becomes a character within the world of animal of animal man, because animal man is both dealing with the DC universe. In fact, at this point, soon after this animal man becomes a part of the justice league, but in his own stories, animal man somehow exists. I don't want to say outside of continuity alongside continuity. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's very weird. And it's very thinky and philosophical. It, and yeah, like he, he becomes aware of himself as a comic book character whose life is being determined by a writer. So, so, he, so he's watching his life and the life of other characters from the outside, mm-hmm. but he's but, still compelled to go through the story as he is written. Right. And that writer is effectively his God, essentially, yeah. and he can interact with them. So there's this weird take on religion. He goes on a quest to meet his creator. Yeah. What happens when you when you do meet your creator? And, you know, what is the meaning of free will if there is an if there is an omnipotent being that controls your fate? So this isn't nearly as big a, as Deadpool, obviously, but really that tracks closer to Gwenpool. Yes. Aware of their own fiction or being in a fictional space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gwenpool does it. Uh, she Hawk was able to do it at this point, yeah. at a point in the 80s with John Byrne. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so. And the thing is, like with yeah. Deadpool and She-Hulk definitely played the, the comedic aspect of it. With, with Animal Man, it played up the whole 
Philosophical. Just, yeah, the I'm just a creation. Do I have do I have self awareness? Do you know, issues of free will? You know, mm-hmm. all of that stuff came into it. And and it, it deconstructed the very nature of comic book storytelling, the concepts of continuity. Uh, this was at a time post crisis where there was only one DC Earth and, and all these other things had been wiped out, except Animal Man shows up in a limbo of forgotten characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which he had been one of. And mm-hmm. and these characters who were just sitting there waiting for their stories to be told again, and they don't they don't cur- currently exist, except they do because those comics are still out there, right. Incl- including Mister Freeze. Right? What's weird is Mister Freeze is one of the people he encounters. Yeah, at this time, right? Mm-hmm. Because he hadn't been brought back yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly like that Morrison leads Animal Man to the point. I mean, Morrison as the character Morrison talking directly to Animal Man, points out that Animal Man may be more real than he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Authors die and pass away and even get forgotten, but a character can endure. Of course. Um, of course, and that breaks down the problem, which which he is aware of, that by by making himself a character in his own narrative, uh, yes. Morrison essentially grants Morrison the person grants himself literary immortality. Did you just say Grant Morrison grants Morrison immortality? Something yeah, like I guess that. I did. <laughs> <laughs> My brain hurts. <laughs> Podcast is rephrase things Mav said. Yeah, <laughs> Mav was working on very little sleep. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, did you know that John Ostrander used the the writer, the Morrison stand-in in Suicide Squad and killed him? No. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Because I I'd stopped reading Suicide Squad by that point in its career. Yeah, he uses yeah. him. And the writer's like, I think I originated as one thing, but now like I'm cut off from that original whatever. Now I'm just kind of set loose now. And like as he writes, things happen in the story, but then he gets killed. And mm-hmm. So, okay, so if Animal Man is the deep philosophical side of deconstruction, I mean, we should, because I'm sure most people who bother to download this podcast, um, they expected us to talk about Watchmen. And we've already done that episode. You know, go back through our archives. We did we did a whole episode devoted to Watchmen. But when you're talking about Watchmen and Watchmen and I would say dark, uh, the Dark Knight story that that Miller did first, but I'd say to a lesser extent, even the things that I don't like, even your Young Bloods, and all the stuff that comes after it. You know, you've got your you know everything Top Cow did. You've got your Witch Blades, right? Fathom all these. You know the the uber sexy. Her clothes are falling off. Wayfish woman with huge breasts that kills want you know kills indiscriminately. And like all those books, right? Do they count? Are they deconstruction the way that that Zack Snyder and other people who use the term, this is a deconstructionist comic because they're, you know, death. Do they count? No, they don't. (laughs) That was nice and simple. Moving on. Well, well, we've we've resolved something. So (laughs) so, so how's it happen? So if we're going to be semi-academic here, right? Mm -hmm. um, Then we do have to hold some kind of line that's saying that what they're calling deconstruction or something that's happening parallel or associated to deconstruction isn't necessarily deconstruction itself. I I will just add, though, that I do think that uh, Warren Ellis did actually Mm -hmm. bring Grim and Gritty back around to deconstruction when he took hold of Wildstorm. And he did. I I, I agree. The authority, the authority, one of my favorite, one of my favorite runs in comics in the last 
I was going to say 20 years, but has it been longer than 20 years? Oh <laughs> yes, my God. 20, 25 years. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's 20. Well, he, st- he, start, he started over, 25 years over, ago, but yeah. he, but just but over 20. The authority starts, authority starts from Stormwatch in 1999. I know this for a fact because of yeah. how the first year ends. So, right. right. So it's been 20 years, <laughs> 21 so, years. And when it's, they let Alan Moore take over Supreme and they let Warren Ellis do Stormwatch and Planetary and then Authority, mm-hmm. I think have the two paths that were separating rejoin. Yes. I, I so, think that's fair. So so for people who don't know what authority is, uh authority is a book that grew out of an image comic. I guess I guess Stormwatch, who who did that belong to originally? Was that a that, that, that was a wild no that was a wild storm. Wild that storm. was so a like second tier Jim Lee stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Storm Stormwatch was kind of a third tier image book. Right. And it was a book that like I guess Jim it it was if it was a Wild Storm book, that means Jim Lee owned it, but he wasn't writing it. He was yeah, I think he's from his corner. I think he probably created most of the original characters. Right. And it's taken over by a guy named Warren Ellis, uh, one of my favorite writers. Starting with issue 37, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you can ignore everything that took place before that. (laughs) Yeah. And he's and he gradually over about two years, I guess, that he did Stormwatch. Right, Wayne? It it ran up to like issue 5354 under the Stormwatch title. Right. So he gradually a year and a half changes Stormwatch into another group called the Authority. He replaces all the characters he doesn't like, brings in new characters, and then he starts this new book called The Authority. And the idea of the Authority is what if the Justice League or the Avengers or, you know, your 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 preeminent superhero team of your universe decides we are sick of misbehaving. So we are we're not going to take over the world. We've just decided that all crime is bad. Don't do crime or we will shut you down. And by you, I mean anybody, whether you're just a guy robbing a bank or whether you're another nation. We're watching. We're in charge. You can't stop us. And we're doing it because we're strong enough to. So there's fascism there. I mean, yeah. like Snyder's yeah. right. Uh, Snyder's right in it to an extent, but it's not my, my problem with BBS. One of the reasons I don't like BBS. And I was actually recently talking with our uh, friend of the show, Danny Anderson, about um, about BBS uh, at work the other day. And, and, you know, he he likes it you know, unabashedly. Um, my problem, my problem with um, with Batman versus Superman is there's no thought behind it other than, well, he's a superhero, so he must be violent. And it doesn't work because everybody's violent. Batman's violent. Superman. I don't I'm not the guy who says we can't have a story where Batman kills. Sure, we can. Batman kills all the time. He always has. But Batman kills. Superman kills. Wonder Woman kills. Commissioner Gordon kills. Like it, it doesn't it, like nobody matters. Right. Everyone is just this uber violent killing machine. So I start losing the point. Like there's nothing. It's not saying anything. Um, that entire story is supposed to be about a conflicting ideology between Superman and Batman. But they're functionally identical characters in his in his version. Authority is these people who are conflicted, but they've all decided are we're going to take over the world. And they're very human characters other than the fact that they have the power of gods. Yeah. I want to correct something I said earlier. Actually, I threw planetary into the mix here. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that planetary is where you start to see more of the reconstructionist. Yes. And and for me, a germ of where Kismet came from. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that Warren Ellis is uh, a difficult topic right now, given his behavior uh, regarding women, regarding younger women. Mm -hmm. But if we're just. 
Warren Ellis, the person is different than Warren Ellis, the writer. Warren Ellis, the person has many, many problems of which I approve of none, but he is a good writer. Exactly what I wanted to note here. I don't think we can overlook the work Mm -hmm. wherein um, Ellis is taking really old tropes going back to pulp heroes, even preceding superheroes and leaping into other genres to take pieces Mm -hmm. of them in order to try building something new, a bridge forward. So whereas I was answering the question before, are these deconstructionists or are these grim and gritty? I think Planetary is doing one thing further that leads us out. We should, Wayne, this is probably for you. What would you say reconstruction is? Um, you know, I, I've thought more about that in the last week than I had just since writing that thing. Um, I, my, my initial thoughts using you, my favorite thing of mage as an example, which is, you know, here's a series where, you know, we have Kevin Matchstick who suddenly has powers and he meets a wizard and he has powers, which is classic, you know, Captain Marvel, Golden Age Captain Marvel origin story. But it's not really a superhero world. There are these fantastic magical creatures in it, but he's not out fighting crime. There's not a costume except he wears a t-shirt with a lightning bolt on it. So it's a lightning bolt, you know, standard superhero fare, but it's a t-shirt like you and I could wear. It's a t-shirt uh, like you do wear every day. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's he he has a magic weapon. It's a baseball bat, not a magic sword or or something like that. It is something more common. He gathers together around him a group of other people with superpowers. Ish, but, yeah. Ish, but they're not wearing <laughs> costumes either. Uh, so it's it's. I really think of it as as an early exemp- example of urban fantasy mm-hmm. which, yeah, as, as a genre thing. Uh, it's certainly before that term was in in regular usage. By the time I saw this as a reconstruction, partially that was early '80s when Moore was working on Miracle Man, and we were getting things like the Squadron Supreme series by Mark Grunewald, which was oh, an- another brilliant. I, I think I think that was very definitely a deconstruction. Um, mm-hmm. And this just seemed to be, and I get, I was seeing Mage as a reconstruction just through the contrast of everything else was this grim, gritty heroes in the real world. They're alcoholics. They have sex addictions. They, they, they're violent, whatever. And Mage was a lighter, more positive look at things. Not that he didn't have problems, not that there wasn't violence in the book, but it seemed mm-hmm. to be rebuilding the idea of a hero. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, so many of the other things, Watchmen Dark Knight seemed to be questioning the whole concept of hero and and perhaps these people aren't really heroes i think for me by the mid 80s the idea again a lot of this has to do with the silver age happening but the idea of what a superhero had become and we've talked about this uh in fact we should probably link in the show notes uh peter kogan's book uh on the definition of on the genre of hero of superheroes um, the idea of a superhero became essentially a superhero is someone who has powers and wears a costume and has a mask, maybe has a cape, punches people like that was a superhero. It was just these rules, right, of, you know, what a superhero is when you see it because they're colorful and they wear capes and and that's it. Watchmen, I think, was special because Watchmen says, OK, what if we take all that away when when the story of Watchmen begins? The superheroes are all retired, all but two of them. And it's and it and the question is, hey, all right, what happens now? What happens if you're just this, you know, what is the essence of a hero? Break this down. What do these tropes really mean? Are you a fascist? Are you impotent? Um, what happens if you're only a superhero because your mommy made you be? You know, there's there's so much that goes into that. And I think that when you get to something like mage or planetary, you're saying, 
all right, now that we've broken this down, let's put this back together and see if we can build something better. Mm -hmm. Right. The other example that I use from that era of Zot, which Zot is the only superhero in either of the two worlds he exists in. Mm -hmm. The the world he's from is a art deco sci-fi it's constantly 1951 or yeah, something. Yeah, ni- 1961, I think. It, okay. Yeah, and it is. It's it's this kind of idealistic 1930s Art Deco version of what the future is going to be with flying cars and robots and whatever. And there are villains, but he's really the only superhero. Mm-hmm. He's um, got a sidekick that's the professor, but like yeah, it's essentially just yeah. him. Uh, and then, but by the end of the series, that that last story arc, the real world stuff, where he comes back to. The real world, Jenny's world, um, where there are no we'll super- it, We it, should it, link Zod in the show notes because it is it is delightful. Yeah, well, and, and, and that that was whole. You know, I mean, Scott McCloud was telling a superhero story that had nothing to do with superheroes. You know, Zod still had his powers. You know, he, he's living in the real world. Although I don't know that he had powers. He had a gun and a jetpack. Mm-hmm. Um, and and his superpower was optimism, I think, uh, <laughs> which was a wonderful tonic to Watchmen and Dark Knight and Killing Joke and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was still telling stories about this same character in a world where you know they had to go to school, and mm-hmm. and the challenge this month was, gee, do I tell my mom I'm gay? Mm-hmm. You know, stories of that nature. Um, so it, it was very definitely a different take than what was going on. In, um, in the lead up to, to our conversation today, I got two titles that were stuck in my head because I have great difficulty defining them as deconstructionist or reconstructionist, but I know they have to be one or the other. So I thought I'd uh, throw it open to the three of you. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of both Cerebus. Mm-hmm. That definitely does some of that work. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of questions thereafter. And frankly, the one that I was always so certain of as Reconstructionist, which was Kingdom Come. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. One of them is way outside indie, proudly indie, self-published and uh, iconoclastic. And the other one is deep inside DC um, mm-hmm. and very much part of its architecture. And it's, it's, I know it was an Elseworlds title, but still very much part of the corporation. Um, mm-hmm. Can I ask your respective opinions on those? I have yeah. definite thoughts, but I don't want to go first. Yeah, you know, well, let, let's introduce Cerebus the Aardvark by the same sort of caveat that we did with Warren Ellis. Okay, yeah. And Which is, is I, I, I think Dave Sim as a creator is incredibly significant. I think Cerebus is a significant book. He did amazing work. Uh, his his work for creators rights um he is one of the most important one of the most important in in history of comics yep so absolutely absolutely and boy is he a difficult personality to to deal (laughs) with uh you know i just trigger warning for anybody who wants to get into dave sim uh there are aspects that are misogynistic and Lots of other things. So misogynistic is the most polite way. Yes, it's a really polite way of saying it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Um, (laughs) And and, and I I think it's unfortunate because Dave Sim as a personality has completely overwhelmed our ability to deal with Dave Sim, the creative force and and force for creators rights that he was at one point. Mm -hmm. So so with all that said, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, had no problem 
pointing out the foibles or the curiosities of all these other genres. Yeah. He's, that force of personality, for better or for worse, um, would put his focus onto the foibles and onto the inconsistencies of many different comics genres yes. uh, and, and embed it in his work. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it started out as a, a Conan parody done with funny animals or specifically a funny animal in a human world. Mm-hmm. And it grew into, I mean, to, to me, the best service work is like issue 25 through 100, the, the church and state and um, uh, high society. And I just did those in reverse order. But it's political commentary and it's commentary on religion. And it's also a parody of everything that was going on in comics at the time. But not just parody, but commentary where he really through making fun of a lot of what was going on in comics. He, mm-hmm. he, he really called into question what comics were and how they worked. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, someone new coming to service and reading it, they're not going to have a clue what the sacred secret wars roach is parroting. You know, it, it's so much. It was so. Yeah, it, 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 so it, it, it is very tied to exactly 1984. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very tales now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so specific to the moment that a lot of it would be lost to, to new readers. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is actually, which I think in a way is actually, I don't want to say good, but it's what makes it so innovative. It was, it was very much a, it was one of the sole things that was that popular. You know, again, this was indie created from the very beginning in a time period when that didn't really happen yet. And he made it current and made it relevant through most of its run. I have problems with the very end. (laughs) Yeah. And at times really genuinely funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At times um, it becomes, uh, again, it's so hard. He's one of the hardest creators to separate from the work because Mm. as you said, he is so overshadowing with the, with some of the vileness of what he became. Mm. Um, And towards the end of the run, it does well. I should say the the end of the run. He's actually publishing it again now. But a lot of it, a lot of his personal, I'll say, demons, very yeah. much crept into the work eventually. Yeah. yeah. So was it? Maybe I should offer a different set of options here. Was it originally deconstructionist and then abandoned? I would actually, with all the caveats, with all the caveats, I would actually argue that Cerebus was always and is still a deconstructionist text Mm -hmm. because regardless of how I personally, Mav the person, might feel about Dave Sim, he is aware of what he is doing and he is doing the work. I might not agree with his his conclusions anymore. His his personal demons, right? Well, well, no, but or his conclusions. Like there's a lot of... I don't have to agree with everybody with everybody's reading of anything, but he is for everything he is. I will not take away from him that he is very, he is a very good writer and he is very intelligent and he knows what he is doing. And with his work, he is, he has a goal that I do not approve of, but he knows what he is doing and he is doing the thing that he is doing very well. So I think, I think it still counts. I just don't like it. <laughs> and I think, yeah. and I think that's fair. Or I don't like it as much as maybe I like some of the earlier stuff. 
Um, mm. But I think it still counts. And um, I, I think, it, I think we have to separate the value judgment away. You know, there's a, I mean, I, Alan Moore has, is a crazy person who writes a lot of stuff. I mean, everything he does is he's trying to deconstruct the industry. And I don't always, you know, a lot of Alan Moore stuff is not good. A lot of it is brilliant. I, I, so I don't think it's fair to say it has to be good in order to be deconstruction. Yeah. And he's not evil. He's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think we uh, resolve your question, Dave. <laughs> well, what about Kingdom Come? Kingdom Come. So I think I was reading, I think Julian Darius, the Sequart guy, has a book about, um, I think it's in his classics of the DC Universe book or whatever the book is called. I read it a few years ago. And I think he he looks at Kingdom Come. Now, I love Kingdom Come. Like, I hadn't been reading comic books since I was like 12. And I was in New York. I was around 18 or 19 for an internship. And uh, one of the guys uh, in the program with me had picked up the graphic novel of Kingdom Come. And I was just skimming through it. And it hooked me. And I sat and read the whole thing through. And I thought it was great. And it was, I mean, of course, Alex Ross is drawing it. It looks beautiful. Um, and so I had always heard that fall. Yeah, I'd always heard that that fell in the um, reconstruction side. And I, I'm trying to remember what Darius's comments. I think I think he criticizes uh, he, he definitely sees it as one of the works that sits on the line between reconstruction and deconstruction. Right. And I think his determination was, is that it did neither well that, um, <laughs> and I think he calls it out for, for its nostalgia, that it's like this weird deconstruction and nostalgia mix that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I personally don't feel that way. I, I think it's well paced and it, it kept me hooked and um, I am a great admirer of, of Julian's writing and in his commentary. So, uh, but this piece isn't coming readily to mind, Matt, I will just say, and this goes back to the question I had earlier. Um, I do think that kingdom come was at least deconstructionist, but the realism here, quote unquote, realism here was a return to idealism, that it was a response mm -hmm. to all the grim and gritty that had unfolded for approximately 15 years by that point. Well, and yeah, because you know, Magog was you know, overtly meant to represent cable. He's, he's cable. Yeah. Cable. yeah. And, and just as a, a symbol of the, the grim and gritty. So it was, yes, here's these two clashing ideologies, the the old school traditional superhero versus the the new school grim and gritty thing. And 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 I, yeah, I think you're right. I think part of what came out of that was that that desire to go back to to heroic heroes. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, we had a question. We had a question um, on the on the call from comments from another friend of the show, John Dorowski, who wrote and said, "What's the role of nostalgia in deconstruction and reconstruction?" And I think that that's. I think Kingdom Come is one of those places where nostalgia, reconstruction, and deconstruction do all just crash head on into each other. I I actually like Kingdom Come a lot. Um, yeah. I prefer of a book that's trying to do the exact same thing it, that it's trying to do. I prefer Marvels as a story, but yeah. I understand that Marvels is just Marvels is essentially me reveling in nostalgia for stories that I loved as a kid. Right. Like that's, that's what it's not really trying to reconstruct so much as it is trying to sort of give new breath 
to these old stories. Whereas Kingdom Come, I think, is trying to do something different. And I, I think Ross succeeds in many ways with his artwork. And I think the narrative succeeds. But also it is it, it is maybe trying to do too much, right? Because like there's there, there's a point where when when you're trying to comment on Cable, who it who at the time that Kingdom Come comes out is absolutely the most popular character in comics. And you're trying to comment on Cable and everything that he represents with this grim and gritty movement. But in a very real way, the book can't get away from just doing Cable, right? Like Magog becomes really cool because he cannot he cannot comment on the thing that he wants to comment on without um without just becoming it and and I, so i don't know that it reconstructs in that in that respect at the other hand on the other hand it's also doing interesting things with you know that's where they first introduced hypertime and it's doing interesting things with you know what what can comics be you know the world that they build at the end of kingdom come is an aspirational world it is about a different kind of hero so i think it's trying to do a lot i'm gonna throw myself on the grenade there Mav, for just a second because um the sequel to kingdom come quote-unquote sequel the kingdom is the kingdom. where is where hypertime becomes explicit but if you're talking about mm-hmm. all different strands of dc universe reality you're right it does get touched upon mm-hmm at the end of Kingdom Come itself. Right. And then it's, and then it becomes weird because Mark Wade, who wrote, oh, he wrote Kingdom Come. Did he write Kingdom as well? Yes. He, well, he at, re- at least wrote, I don't know if he wrote every offshoot branch to it, but he definitely wrote the core series. Okay. So at the same time that he's explaining Hypertime in the series, he's also doing interviews where he's explaining Hypertime as a narrative construct for DC. And it, and it very intentionally sort of crosses over. So in within the world, Hypertime is time is like a river that can branch off and then rejoin. And it, and it tries to explain the physics of time travel within the DC universe. And then outside the world, he's very much, and, and this is essentially what Hypertime becomes. And it's what Morrison's trying to do with multiversity and what uh, Doomsday Clock is trying to do. You know, Jeff John's Doomsday Clock is trying to do much later. Um, it, it, it within the DC universe, it co- becomes this idea that there is no continuity. Any story that we published, if you love that story, then it counts. It matters to you. All stories happened. Always, yeah. you know, th- I, we we can't take them away from you. So, what is continuity? It's what you make of it. And and this is, I mean, this is fundamental to my dissertation. So it is really kind of revolutionary thought that Wade's having there. Um, it sort of ties into some ideas by Umberto Eco, but it is. It is. I think that there's a very definite reconstructionist move where you're trying to mix all that together. And I think if anything, it just sort of shows that something doesn't have to be explicitly deconstructionist or reconstructionist. It can be both. And then you throw in this heavy wave of nostalgia with it. You know, everything from there's entire panels, which are just homages to classic Kirby or Schuster and Siegel covers or, you know, (laughs) I I think the fat Albert and the Cosby kids show up in one panel, you know, (laughs) you know, until your dissertation becomes a book, I want to offer two other books that are just fantastic on this subject. Um, Mm -hmm. First, uh, Jeff clock's book, um, how to read comics and why and and why. Yeah, absolutely. Which I, I think basically goes to what is the point or the message or the, 
purpose of either deconstructionist or reconstructionist books. More recently, what what you just referenced, uh, David Hyman came out with a great book called Revision in the Superhero Genre, which basically points to superheroes as doing the proper work, the sort of pastiche work that uh, we should think about all writing doing, that there's never a final draft, that there's never something that's totally concluded, a story that can't be either retold or picked back up or or revised, and that the superhero genre always operates uh, in that area. It always operates in a revisionary space, and that's not its weakness, which maybe Umberto Eco lightly suggests it's its weakness, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's more than likely yeah <laughs> yeah i was trying to remain open to other interpretations of it but yeah. so, so it's so D- david i think uh I, I didn't quite catch that last comment so it's not its weakness unlike what echo says but it's it's are you, are you just saying it's its strength it's its strength yeah that the superhero genre allows for your favorite version of a character to always exist. Yeah. Your favorite story or your favorite saga to always exist, even if it's not part of the current diegesis, even if it's not part of the current reality, or if it's being replayed through a totally different hero, whether we have the Justice League, the Authority, or the Avengers, it almost doesn't matter. You're excited about their space opera of of that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a, yeah, David Hyman is saying that that's a strength of the genre and should be more of a model for writing overall. Mm-hmm. To be open to the idea that we're always going to have the edible poet rewriting what came before. So why not turn into that skit? Why not be like pleased and ready and available for someone's work, whether it's creative or nonfiction, to have that um, flexibility? And I, I have to recommend our, our old episode on discontinuity. Yeah. <laughs> when we talk about yeah. that. I, some, we're 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 probably already over the hour. I don't want to re- say we haven't resolved anything yet. There's there's a couple points I want to bring up that I thought would work in more naturally, but they haven't. So, uh, something, yeah, no, just something I, I just read within the last few days. Uh, Kieran Gillen, who did Wicked and Divine, uh, Die, and some other stuff, um, did a series last year that he he did a, a new take on the Peter Cannon Thunderbolt character. Uh, and I forget who the publisher was. It wasn't Image or Marvel or DC or anybody. It was a smaller publisher, uh, Dynamite, maybe. Um, and we can check that. But it's it. Uh, you know, if you're doing Peter Cannon or any of those Charlton characters, you kind of have to address Watchmen at this point. You have to account for that in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And just as an explanation for the people who don't know, DC got the rights to Charlton superheroes. Alan Moore put together a proposal using those characters. DC said, you can't do that to those characters. They became Watchmen um, in a nutshell. Uh, so Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is the the inspiration for what became Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. So in this series, it starts out with Peter Cannon, uh, who is the smartest man in the world, and he's at the peak of human perfection. He uses 90% of his brain, whatever it is. He's surrounded by another group of superheroes who are obvious archetypes while not being one for one, the Justice League or the Avengers. They are the obvious superhero archetypes. And the world has been invaded by aliens. And in the first issue is them fighting the aliens and Peter Cannon, by being smart, figures out a way to defeat them. And then the final scene is him talking to his friend 
saying, this wasn't a real invasion. Someone put this together. Look what's happened on this world. All the, all the feuding countries of this world have come together to beat, to beat this alien invasion. This was planned. And his friend says, who could do something like that? And Peter's cannon's like, I could have done something like this. <laughs> Which is exactly just he's he's riffing on Ozzy. He's riffing on Ozzy Mandius, and his friend says, "You didn't." He goes, "No, I didn't." But a me from an alternate universe did. <laughs> so the next couple of issues of the series, and it took me a little bit to really glom onto what what Gillen was doing here, because there was you know, the the alternate universe. Peter Cannon had a symbol on his forehead like Dr. Manhattan does, but it, it was more of a clock gear, which also ties in. There was a table, a yellow table they pulled away from and like, oh, it's the smiley face doomsday clock thing. And someone gets blown up and their their blood spatter is a Rorschach pattern on the the wall. And I'm like, okay, he's he's addressing all these these watchmen things, but this is such a surface level of addressing that stuff that oh what he's deconstructing is how no one got Watchmen. Right. He's and just, just, and just dealt with the surface level of it. Right. He's, he's commenting on, and see that becomes, so is, is that too clever for its own good? Right. Because yeah. what's the, what's the, what's the message there? Are we just being nostalgic because he's, he's Easter egging. So, you know, one of my mm-hmm. problems, Dave, you mentioned early on, you mentioned Zack Snyder's version of the movie Watchmen, which right. I don't want to go into much. Cause we, you know, we did a whole episode on, my feelings on Watchmen, but I didn't like it. I, I I thought that it was this movie where I think that I think that Zack Snyder is a beautiful filmmaker. I think his eye is amazing. He has an eye for detail, particularly with action that is unmatched by most people working in Hollywood today, particularly for action scenes. He's great. However, I think he's a horrible storyteller, and I felt like he didn't understand Watchmen. I felt like he did his best to translate things that he read in a book onto screen without like thinking about the why, you know, sort of a like a, like a Jurassic Park kind of thing. So concerned with whether or not you could do it. You, you, I mean, that you didn't stop to think if you should. And I think that that was that was my problem with Watchmen. But I think that's what's happening with, you know, where the deconstruction era, the grim and gritty era happened was it's just this attention to tropes it's like a, oh well they're doing that thing and you know you you, you you look at the you look at the snyder cut of watchmen and oh look see he's got the thing on the moon he's got the thing yeah. on the moon you know, i mean on, on mars you know like it's it's a lot of that compare that to lindelof's recent watchmen tv series which i thought was doing something different you know mm-hmm. we did and was was building on it and really commenting really trying to say something deep and so when you look at something like the Thunderbolt book that that Wayne's talking about, yeah, sure. It's great if you have um, if you have some deeper meaning, if you're trying to do something interesting with the tropes. But at the point at which people are missing it, people who aren't Wayne and it's just like, a, oh, he did the thing. He did the thing. Easter yeah, egg, I- Easter egg. Well, then what's the point? Yeah. Or does there have to be a point? Can literature just be enjoyed on two different levels where there's going to be be people who are looking for deeper meaning and there's going to be people who are just enjoying seeing stuff? And, That's and the I, nostalgia. And, and I think some of it, you know, I think, do believe a lot of people have read this Thunderbolt series and just they, they would see those things and, and that would be all it was. But like to me, it was so I, I know Gillen is a more skilled storyteller than that. Um, 
and it just it was so it felt so clumsy it's like no he's doing more here by the fourth issue of the series he travels to a world and the entire a different another a different reality that is a real world kind of place and the entire thing is drawn in an eddie campbell like style completely changes the tone of the entire book uh, which once again is purposeful for the commentary he's making. I, I'm still processing the book. Um, mm-hmm. so, I, so I don't have all my thoughts in line, but just, I, I read that like the day after writing the call for comments for this episode. And it's like, Oh, this is something I need to at mm-hmm. least reference in some way. Um, so, uh, so there's that. Um, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we resolved nothing. We, we've resolved nothing. I <laughs> <laughs> comics will resolve more once you read Kismet. Uh-huh. Yes, there you go. There you oh, go. Yeah. I mean, I guess we can go into plugs, but I, I was going to say. I mean, before we do that, though, I I do think um I I think that it's an ongoing conversation. I, I don't know that this is even more so than most of our shows. This isn't something we can resolve because the entire nature of the industry is to constantly be in flux uh, more so than ever these last few weeks, but um, with, with changes going on at DC comics in particular, but also for these last several years, since 2008, the question of what is the real, what is the real comic is are the comics, the superheroes or the comics an offshoot or a feeder ground for the movies who are the real superheroes. There's so many questions. Mm-hmm. The genre is in such a complete state of flux that I think we're constantly deconstructing and reconstructing. And this conversation is ongoing. This is what, you know, more than most of our shows, this is what our conversations at our conferences really are like, you yeah. know, where we're just trying to break these things down. <laughs> Um, I, I'm going to throw out one more thing that we just don't have time to talk about, but I, I thought of this 45 minutes ago when we were talking about Animal Man, that idea of fictional characters becoming aware that they're fictional characters. I just want to quickly recommend uh, Mike Carey's The Unwritten series, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially that. It's a very much a, a take on Harry Potter. Uh, you know, Here's this character, what Tommy Tyler, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only is he aware that he, he was written into existence like he he believe he's a human kid and whatever but he discovers his origins that he was created as a fictional character who has come into the real world uh so it's, it's another way of dealing with that which brings mm-hmm. me back to morrison that just hit my mind he talks about this a lot in super gods the idea of a fiction suit mm-hmm. you write yourself into fiction the way he wrote himself into animal man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And less overtly, King Mob in The Invisibles is Grant Morrison at a specific point in his life. Where he for, cre- he so creates- we don't have to go into it too much for for people who aren't into using academic terms and into, you know, Morrison chicanery. Uh, fiction suit is Morrison's uh, clever way of saying that he likes to make himself uh, what the Internet calls a Mary Sue in his own stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but which and that might have to be another episode. That's another show. Um, we, we should talk about the idea of Mary Sue's and they're not necessarily as bad as people sort of make mm. them out to be. But, but anyway, I have to do a sequel to this anyway. Yeah. But yeah I just I, I thought of that while we were talking. I wanted to, to at least throw it in there as a recommendation mm-hmm. for people who are interested in that sort of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
So I think um, since he's clearly chomping at the bit, since it is related, though, uh, Dave, you know, is there anything you want to promote? <laughs> I wasn't just jumping for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK. That's OK. Dude, you're more shameless than I am. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a lot to be shameless true. here. That's true, even outside of this specific. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, the point I was trying to make um, actually was that we're continuing to wrestle with deconstruction and reconstruction, and I'm now trying to wrestle with it in a creative fashion with yes. the man of faith. I think um, you absolutely are, which is why I wanted you on the show. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I am trying to ask what uh, our sense of good versus evil, us versus them. Um, what rising threats of yesteryear still feel important, still are recognizable to us, or have been just incredibly warped um, over the years by stories told about them or by, you know, shifting political allegiances. That's one of the things that by bringing Kismet back from World War II time, which was not as black and white and clear cut as we got in the comic, uh, and making him an activist now, uh, is trying to accomplish. We, we already put out the first volume, which is uh, still available and in print. Uh, now we're doing a Patreon to support the second volume. Mm -hmm. And that will, of course, be linked in the show notes. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it, it is an interesting question. And I also, I mean, it's sort of a weird thing because it, obviously this show is all about deconstruction. Um, you know, that's why you're listening to it. But speaking of that, uh, Dave, you co-edit and Matt, you co-edit one series and edit another series that is exactly this with a very specific twist. So Matt, anything you want to promote? Sure. Uh, well, let's start with the thing David and I are doing together, which is the religion and comic series uh, from Claremont Press uh, connected to Claremont School of Theology. Uh, they were in Claremont, California. I think they're actually moving campuses, but that's that's not important. Um, we're seeking proposals for that series. Uh, we have three books right now in the pipeline with a potential fourth and fifth. Um, but, you know, one on cults and comics, another on um, Hellboy, and then another on an auto ethnographic exploration of theology and superhero comics. So uh, we're looking at some others on profits in comics and helping craft and critique some uh proposals another one on uh on sickism profits and comics p-r-o-p-h-e-t-s not p-r-o-f-i-t-s yeah we, yeah no there's, <laughs> there's no profit in comics yeah um and then i'm uh i edit a series from lexington and fortress academic theology and pop culture um we have three books available one on the marvel well one on the marvel universe just transmedia across the board comics movies tv shows etc exploring some different themes there uh one on prince one on westworld uh that was recently released over the summer with uh by our friends julie gittinger and Shana shanefeld and uh and one more actually is available for pre-order now on um and, and if you're listening to this and you're into comics this might not be for you but uh one on sports <laughs> and uh sports mm -hmm. and play and uh, specifically in Christian theology. And so uh, with some more coming down and probably being made available for pre-order over the next month or two. So mm -hmm. sounds great. Yeah. And Wayne. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's <laughs> the best plug ever. Yeah, yeah. I just I love that. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing new this week. Mm-hmm. Wayne's Instagram's linked in the show notes, like every week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I guess for me, you can follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, all of the places. Always at Chris Maverick, and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Vox Popcast or on the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we tell you what we're going to be talking about next week in regular calls for comments and you can give us thoughts that we can incorporate into the show. You can suggest topics for us. You can comment on this show or any other one that we've ever done. Give us your thoughts. If you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes. That helps other people find the show, especially if you don't just leave a rating, but you write a review and you say what you love about the show. You say why you love it and why it deserves five stars. And that also makes me happy. It helps me deconstruct something or reconstruct. It reconstructs my very soul. I'm a very sad little man. (laughs) That's, That's really what this is about. Also, do us a favor if you go, if you follow the link in the show notes and subscribe to us on YouTube, that would really help us out. Same thing. Like and subscribe to all of our videos. We, I think this this is a video that's probably going to have a lot of visual aids. Usually on the YouTube feed, if there's something that we're talking about that has a visual component, you can, you know, I would put up examples as we talk. So I'm probably bald now from pulling out my hair, trying to find references to everything that we mentioned on this very episode, which probably show up in the show up on the YouTube feed. So we'd appreciate it if you'd like and subscribe there. Go there and like and subscribe to all the other videos. That also helps us become more popular, which means we can do more shows, which is what we really, really want. Because, you know, otherwise, as is the case with such bleak and deconstructionist texts like this show, life has no meaning. I'm just <laughs> ideology is dead. There is no, you know, it's like um, seriously, don't read Derrida. Just, yeah, just know yeah. it's bad for you. Um, <laughs> help, us re- like, help us reconstruct ourselves. Yes, Sorry. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. Dave and Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. I'd, I'd like to thank you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. You know that whole thing, you got to know the rules before you can break them. With Watchmen, you really learn the rules of superhero all the way. You know, what what it takes to make a superhero, what it takes to destroy a superhero. And that and that is, was invaluable when going into this because, you know, what I was trying to do here, what I felt like the irony of this film is that there's no irony in, in that what I was trying to do is make Superman awesome and, uh, and relatable and like, I want to be, you know, you want to make a Superman that you want to be, not a Superman that you just are observing, you know? And I think that that, with what I learned from Watchmen, I think that that was what I really, that was the challenge of making this movie, was trying to get Superman back where he belongs at the, at the top of the heap.